Welcome everybody to another episode of Counting on Chase and we're delighted to have you back with us. This is the series that connects nonprofits who are really working hard on their mission, vision and values to the reality of nonprofit accounting. It's not an easy bridge to cross if you don't know what you're talking about, who to go to and how to get the right information. Today, we're going to be talking about understanding restricted funding, and I'm joined by the amazing Martha Hulsbeck, CPA, so we know we're getting the right information. Martha, you are responsible for the talent recruitment and the development of, of the Chazen team. Talk to us before we pepper you with all of our questions about what that means. Getting the right talent is really important in our business. We are, um, first of all, in the customer service business, and secondly, we do accounting. So finding someone who can do both is sometimes a challenge. And also, we specialize in nonprofit accounting, which is you know a small subfield of a very larger field. So sometimes finding that right mix is a real, you know, really difficult. So we do a lot of training in-house of our people to you know, help them increase their skills. And so that's kind of what I do. I look for the right person and then I make sure they have the skills to do their job. You know, Martha, you and I were chatting before um, and, and this is a really interesting thing to me that I've learned. Um, I have increased my appreciation of how critical it is to have a nonprofit accounting team working with our nonprofits because it is so different and it has um, so many implications to how we run and how we govern our nonprofits. And so um, that has been something that's really been an eye opener to me as we've been working together on Counting on Cheese and uh, the series that really strengthens our nonprofits. Today, we're gonna talk about the understanding of restricted funding, how that works, what it means, and I gotta say what I think of first, and, and correct me if you think I'm wrong, I think in the nonprofit sector, we chase the dollar. I think we, we get these reports that say, hey, this grant is available, or you know, there's, there's free money over there, and then we get all excited and amped up about engaging in this funding process and not always with the lens of understanding what the implications are. And one of those is that restricted funding. So I'm really interested in having you share with us um, a new way to look at this maybe that's, that's more intellectual and actually is going to help everybody stay on the same page. So let's start off by asking this big question. What is restricted funding? Well, restricted funding is comes from with conditions attached to it. So you are funded to do a particular thing. Um, you're funded to do something at a particular time in a particular way. Um, all different kinds of restrictions on funding. And that can be funding that comes from an individual donor or it can be funding that comes from a grantor, a private foundation, federal state, all different places. So it's not just those federal or government related contracts. What I hear you saying is 
um, it can be that individual donor or you that that family foundation. I was always thinking um, that maybe it's more heavy on the government side. Is that not the case? It really depends on the organization. Um, there, there are many, many organizations that do not get any federal funding and it's all for them all about donors. Oftentimes it's a mix, but the, really the treatment is the same that if someone gives you um, an award and there are conditions on what it can be used for, how it can be used, then the, the notion of restricted funding comes into play. I love it. So when we think about this, you have a, a phrase that I need some help on understanding, and that is revenue recognition. If, can you explain that to me and why this is such an important component of understanding the bigger picture of restricted funding? The complication or the notion of revenue net recognition really comes in when someone commits to give you something, but they don't necessarily deliver cash you know, when they make that commitment. So the question becomes, what do I do with that? How do I, how do I recognize the fact that I have a commitment? It also comes into play when there are certain kinds of restrictions wrapped around a money that's already been given to you. And then how is that reflected um, in terms of your revenue? I think um, nonprofit boards all the time are wondering why there seems to be revenue, but there just doesn't seem to be any cash sometimes. And that's, that's, that's a problem that you'll, you'll get that question a lot. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for saying that because I've been at that board table and thought the exact same thing when we look at this and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll be honest when all this other stuff's going on, sometimes it's hard to put your hand up and say, Whoa, stop. Can you explain that to me so that I can be, you know, uh, more effective in my, in my governance and my fiduciary responsibility as a board member? I mean, this is a pretty big topic, isn't it? Yeah, it certainly is. And I think it's the hardest really for people to understand because I think in our personal finances, we don't talk about the potential. We talk about what we have in our bank account. <laughs> right, right. What's there versus what's not. Yeah. Um, talk a little bit before we go on. And again, I have so many questions for you. Restricted net assets. How is that related to this bigger picture? Well, restricted net assets is really the way you reflect in on a financial statement. You reflect uh, what you have, but but what has some restrictions on it. So um, if you were to compare it to a you know, a for-profit financial, it's, it's the equivalent of, you know, the owner's equity or the, and a combination of the owner's equity and any retained earnings that might be there. So it really is that in the nonprofit setting, but the restricted portion of it is the portion of what you have that you, you can only use if you meet certain conditions to use it. Right. You know, I think that word restricted and, um, you know, really, it's interchangeable with so many other other words when we think about um, compliance to the grant and to the restrictions or to the the demands of that 
of that uh, revenue stream. It's really a fascinating thing because I can also see it coming in phases, right? I mean, it's not it's it's not unrealistic to expect, especially for very large grants, that there are going to be some phases um, put into this. And this kind of leads me to my next question about pledge contributions, understanding those restrictions. And I think you're going to tell me that this is like a whole nother sticky wicket. Yeah, we could have a, a whole other conversation about this, but just, just generally when you receive a pledge, it's typically sort of the, the restricted side of it can be two pronged. One is why, why did someone give you the money? What do they, what are they saying you can do with the money? And that's what we would identify as a purpose restriction. Okay. There may also be a time restriction and typically with a pledge, there is a time restriction. So it may be something that's going to happen in the future that they're going to fund. And so there's a time restriction there, or they're going to give you the money over time, which introduces its own kind of time restriction. Mm -hmm. So you may go ahead and start doing everything that the money was pledged for, but you still may be waiting for the money and then you'd be facing a different kind of time restriction. So complicated, but it is, it is, pledges can be, can be hard to understand that way. Right. You know, it's, it's really leads me to the overall opinion um, that when we're looking at this type of funding, we need to have the resources in place for us to navigate the process because to your point about the revenue versus the cash the cash flow we might not have that money in our account but yet we're still expected to take care of certain aspects of our, our funding of the grant um, and the funding doesn't always exist in at that point in time when we need it to be you know oh absolutely i mean the, the cash flow planning and forecasting is critical um, because this, this funding and the cash related to the funding doesn't just trickle in. Um, so you have to deal with those bulges and, you know, plan for that um, as you begin to execute on something. Right. Really important. Really important. Okay. Now I think you're going to talk to me and, and dispel another aspect of this. And that is the, um, auditing for compliance and the auditing aspect which comes in two forms what your funder might ask for is an audit of you know we use the word audit i do um, measuring and monitoring performance and executing the grant contract but then you're also talking about the big audit which we've talked about on, on counting on chasen can you help us to understand how we might kind of take a look at those two very important aspects of working with our funders. So some, some funders actually have, you know, an internal audit process that they will do on, on a particular grant. I mean, that tends to be with larger organizations, but sometimes small organizations can be very diligent about following up to ensure, in all cases, it's to ensure that the funds were used according to their intention. And that's, that's what external auditors are interested in. You know, your, your sort of typical annual audit will, will do some testing to ensure that you've been using the funds in accordance with, um, you know, the agreement that you made. But then there's also um, like the funders will do auditing. And if, 
you know, some informal auditing of your own is really important to make sure that those two other kinds of audits are successful. Yeah. Um, help me out with this. Do you find that within the grant contract that that's going to be spelled out pretty specifically or is that a little bit more nebulous? It depends a lot on um, the on the particular agreement that you make. Um, sometimes agreements are very vague, and it's it's difficult to to know when you're being compliant. Um, and in those situations, I would always encourage you to just ask a lot of questions of the funder um, because you want to find out as you start, as opposed to as you finish, or when you send them a required grant report and they tell you something's not correct. You never want to be in that situation. Right. So I would start out with an open line of communication. And sometimes it's hard to get that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a good comment. But I would, I would encourage you to do that, particularly if it's a new funder. Mm -hmm. You know, it also makes me think that not only wrapping in that funder and that dialogue and that relationship, but it seems to me like you got to get on board with your accounting provider as well to make sure that you are tracking the right things and that you have those internal controls to do that tracking. Because if you've got to go back, let's say after, you know, a 24 month period or, or and try and recreate things, that's going to be brutal. So it seems to me, and, and do you think that's fair to say, we've got to set that up almost at the same time, we're setting it up with our funder, with, with our accounting professionals. Yeah, and I think, you know, to be honest, I think your accounting professionals would love to know at the application stage for the grant that, you know, there's, you know, that you're looking at a new source of funds or you're looking at a new option year on an existing grant so that you can begin to isolate anything associated with that particular grant or that particular you know, donation if it's coming from an individual so that you are quickly and nimbly able to say, you know, this is where we are. And you're able to say to your funder, this is where we are in a, you know, in a more formal reporting context. Wow. I never thought about that. I, I, that's brilliant. And, and that's really strategic because I would imagine if you're doing that, you might get that feedback from your accounting professional that says, yeah, maybe this isn't a good direction or this is going to cost you X dollars to perform these these measurements. Um, because again, as we started out this conversation, Martha, you know, we're chasing the buck and sometimes we don't think about all, all these additional costs. I mean, it, it's really a it's a hamster wheel that we get on, I think, very, very easily in the nonprofit sector. I've got another question for you, and, and that's kind of um, an interesting thing about the, this whole process. Again, we're talking about restricted funding, and we're talking about all of these different aspects about tracking and understanding and the communications part. Talk to us briefly about the permanent versus temporary um, funding aspect, because we kind of addressed it a little bit with... Um, some of these relationships that we might have with with matching grants or things that have to be in place or phases of grants permanent versus temporary that's a pretty big lift for a lot of people it is and luckily uh, permanent re 
permanently restricted funds is, is fairly um, unusual in the sort of common everyday setting. But okay. a permanent restriction has to do with a typically when there's an endowment of some sort, there's an endowed scholarship, there's an endowment to manage the organization. And there's a there's a, a portion of the donation or the entire original donation or um, it's typically not in a grant context that you have a permanent endowment, but in a donation context, it's a it's a portion that can never be used in executing the either a program or just in running the organization. Okay. So we think of that typically use a term corpus, um, but it's something that you um, you can really never dip into. Okay. And then temporary is sort of everything else. And temporary is actually uh, not a term used in nonprofit accounting anymore, but it's certainly a concept that, you know, it's, it's much less restricted if it's temporarily restricted. Interesting. Okay. Now here's, get your catcher's mitt. Here's, here's the curveball. Um, like situations that we've just gone through with the pandemic and, and maybe we're em embarking upon an economic time of change or shift. Do, do we ever go back to funders or is this a, in, a, in a conversation that could then um, realign some of these aspects or is it that firm that we don't ever go back and re renegotiate or adjust the, these d designated funds? Well, there's often restrictions within a grant that, you know, there's a certain time period that you have to deliver. And certainly a lot of this during pandemic, but this happened pre-pandemic also, where that for, for one reason or another, you're not going to be able to execute the program in that particular period of time. Yeah. And most funders are amenable to a discussion about an extension. You know, sometimes we have what we call a no cost extension where they don't give you any extra money, but they allow you to increase your delivery time in order to, you know, meet the restrictions of the grant. Mm -hmm. um, there, typically there are a number of ways that you can negotiate with a funder if something didn't go the way that you had expected it to when you um, applied for the grant and submitted the budget. So mm -hmm. does that answer your question, Julia? You know, it really does because I'll tell you what it, it uh, makes me think of. It goes back to the word of, the, the word communication, you know, in relationship. And if you have a relationship with somebody at that organization that you can literally pick up the phone and say, hey, can we talk about this? Or we're seeing some issues or can you assist us or give us guidance even, even give us guidance. Um, that's going to be a lot healthier for everyone. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think sometimes um, organizations are nervous about being, you know, transparent and saying, I have a question, you know, they think they should know all this. Um, yeah. But, you know, that's, it's hard. And but like I said, the language in the agreements are often vague. I mean, we, we encounter this all the time. And we'll, we'll discuss things, you know, with auditors about what they interpret the language to be. And we may, we may all three still be confused. And so sometimes we really just say to 
an organization, we need to go back and talk to the funder about what they what they intended here. Right, so. intent. Okay, now as we wrap up, um, and again, I have so many questions, and I know that after we're done here uh, with this episode of Counting on Chazen, I know other questions will come or come up. But I got to ask this, and it's somewhat heartbreaking, but is there ever a time when we need to say no or we need to decline this, this opportunity? That's a tough one. Um, you know, there's all <laughs> kinds of reasons that you want to take every dollar you can lay your hands on. I understand yeah. that. Um, you know, sometimes in university lab settings, there's a whole compensation issue around how much funding you've gotten. Um, but there are situations, and we see them all the time, where the um, requirements on the grant, particularly around reporting, can be so onerous that you would spend more time and, you know, money if you're talking about personnel responding to those, you know, to those requirements. And then that's, you know, that's a situation where, you know, you would, you would really question this. There are other issues around, um, you know, whether a grant really fits your organization in terms of mission and all of that. And that's, you know, those are, those are different kinds of questions, but there are definitely sort of dollars and cents reasons why you might think hard about this. And that's, that's why I was suggesting that it's good to talk with your professional ahead of time because they might say, look, look at, you know, look what you're going to have to do here. You know, that's going to be hard. So, you know, I love that. And I don't think I've ever heard anybody from the, the, the viewpoint of the nonprofit uh, talk about that, you know, say, yeah, let's get, let's get our professionals on the phone and, and let's see what they're advising us before we, we go down that road because I agree. I think it could be just um, really a detriment to your relationship, not only with that funder, but the funding community. The funding community talks, you know, they, they communicate internally. And if they've had a good relationship with a certain nonprofit or certain staff and leadership within a nonprofit, that gets shared. You know, we may not want to admit that, but it does. So interesting. So very interesting. Well, I've really enjoyed this, Martha. I think that um, restricted funding is one of those things that we forget about. We might bandy that, that term about, but really understanding what it means and how it can impact us. This has been a great, great conversation today, and I really appreciate you sharing your knowledge with us today on Counting and Chasen. Um, Martha Hillsbeck, CPA. Martha's one of these amazing minds that's at Chasen and Company. Uh, Martha, I've seen a lot of your work on the website in terms of the blogs. I know we have some other episodes with you uh, where we get to, to dig into your um, observations and your knowledge about nonprofit accounting. So thank you very, very much for being with us today. You're welcome. Love to spread knowledge. <laughs> I love it. Hey, everybody, I'm Julia Patrick, CEO of the American Nonprofit Academy. It's been my pleasure to help steward this conversation on another episode of Counting on Chasen. We're really excited that you could join us. We have a lot of information on Chasen and Company's website and in, the, in this series. So stay with us so that you can help achieve your nonprofit's mission, vision, and values.